You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. You're listening to Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and we're here for a very special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series. My guest today is Rowan Hamoud. She is an attorney located in Isla, New Jersey, practicing divorce and family law. Welcome, Rowan. Thank you for having me. Hi. So I wanted to, I usually start with the same question with all my FemSquire guests and we start with where did you go to college and what did you want to be when you grow up? But I want to back up a little bit with you because you have an interesting background. You live in Wayne, New Jersey now, but you didn't always. Can you give us a little information about your background? So I was born in um, the capital of Jordan, and uh, shortly thereafter, we moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, my family and I, I'm the oldest of four. My father's a doctor, and my mom's a nurse. Um, and then we moved to Qatar and to the capital there. And during the first Gulf War, uh, when we saw some missiles flying over our villa, we tri- all moved straight here with four other doctors and their families straight to Wayne. And my dad worked out of St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson. Um, and since then, my family continues to be in Wayne, New Jersey, but I actually am now living in Jersey City. Okay. Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> well, that's I, that's a colorful story. So I, it's kind of, I, I have to hear, you know, the you have to contrast what it was like to live in the Middle East versus living in Wayne. And how old were you when you moved to Wayne? I was 11 years old. I uh, came here without any uh, knowledge of the English language um, and had to learn. I, I, I took English as a second language in sixth grade. Uh, but I'll tell you a little funny story about uh, the language barrier issue. Um, so my dad, of course, came before us to set up our home and do whatever he had to do. He picked us up at Newark Airport. Um and our, on our way home to Wayne, New Jersey, uh, we asked my dad in, in Arabic, uh, where, where do we live? Um, and he said, Wayne. And the problem uh, and the confusion arose from the fact that the word Wayne uh, translates to where in Arabic. So we kept saying Wayne and he kept saying Wayne. And it was a huge <laughs> misunderstanding for a couple of minutes. Uh, so that was our very first experience in driving to our new home. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's been a, a huge difference, obviously. Um, I, I grew up in a, a fairly... Uh, moderate family uh, with highly educated people. So uh, I can't say I, I lived an oppressed life there. We lived in a villa when you're when you're a doctor at that time, uh, which many people weren't uh, that highly educated. Uh, you get free housing and uh, full-time staff and all that good stuff. So we actually um, took a uh, step backwards initially when we first got to the U.S. because my dad had to do his residency again. Uh, but really, in those Gulf states, um, Jordanians um, are viewed um, in the same way as uh, people from, uh, you know, the U.S. and, and Europe, uh, because they were a little more progressive um, and occupied, really, by the U.K. or the, by Britain until 1946. So um, even our queen, our former queen, Nora, 
was actually an American actress uh, who fell in love with the king, who has since passed. But um, that allowed that country to really go in the right direction, making sure that women and men were treated equally. Did you have a bit of a culture shock when you came to Wayne? How did you Um, feel at 11? At first, I mean, being the oldest of four, uh, I really, you know, it, it was really important because having your siblings and having them be so close in age really helped in the transition. So um, at first it was really difficult, honestly, because I, I don't, I didn't know what people were saying to me, right? I'm, I see them smiling at me and saying hi and being friendly, but I don't know what they're actually saying. Um, so that was really frustrating, but I think it was also uh, a motivator to learn quickly. So I watched all the TV in the world and started to, you know, uh, get this New Jersey, Brooklyn-y kind of accent <laughs> out of nowhere, uh, just from really watching MTV and all that good stuff growing up. Um, and then I really didn't feel the culture shock until probably freshman year in high school, right? I wasn't used to that level of freedom um at schooling that is i was i went to an all-girls school overseas at uniforms and all that stuff so um it's like going from an uh, all-girls catholic school to now a public school and you know teenagers and teenagers so uh i may have pushed the boundaries a bit with my parents and and really helped my younger siblings out yeah Uh, you know, it all worked out at the end. <laughs> well, you, I'm impressed with your English because you don't have an accent at all. I hear maybe a little bit of the Jersey thing, but that's okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't hear, I, I wouldn't know that English was your second language if you didn't tell me your story. Yeah, I mean, and many people don't really pick it up. I do my best to try not to let the Jersey accent, um, come out too much. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, uh, as any New Jerseyan knows, uh, when you're in the heat of an argument, even as an attorney, it's, it's hard to contain it. It will slip, slip in. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I did my best to, to learn quickly. Luckily for me, I guess language was an easier thing for me than, than a lot of people. Um, and then having both, uh, my parents, they learned, uh, medicine overseas in English because it's universally taught that way. So that helped a lot that I was getting reinforcement at home too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So now we can get into where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? So at um, age 16, I took a business law class. And in that moment, I knew I I liked arguing. Um, I liked um, to look at things from different uh, perspectives. Um, and I, I got really excited about becoming an attorney. I was supposed to be a doctor, you know, the oldest one. There was really no choice in the matter. Uh, but I, I went against the grain um, and decided to, to become an attorney. Um, I think at 16, I I knew that was going to happen. I knew before that, that whatever job I had was going to involve, in my mind as a child, uh, a briefcase and a suit. (laughs) That's all I knew. Um, And then Not scrubs. Right, not scrubs. I mean, I I, I enjoyed my anatomy and physiology classes. It it came easy to me, but uh, I I didn't think that um, I could uh, assist people in the way that I could doing uh, uh, that versus being in in private practice. Um, And I just did not, um, did not want to be in a hospital every day. Was your dad disappointed? (laughs) Did did he have a dream that you would follow in his footsteps? Oh yeah, of course. And my baby brother is uh, 10 years younger than me. He's uh, in his second year in his residency at Lenox Hill. So he did follow in my father's footsteps. Uh, my sister, I guess, kind of, she went into dental hygiene, so that's medical-ish. Uh, and my other brother is also like me. He went into I- the IT world and completely went in a different direction. Uh, but I think for me, I think, I think my dad expected it that, it, that, that I would go into the law, uh, and he may actually have uh, inadvertently assisted me in that decision by making me watch the news with him every single night and listening to, you know, everyone debating all these issues and then debating those issues with him. Um, it really, I think helped me develop the skills I needed to be an attorney. So where did you go to college? 
I did what most people in New Jersey did, <laughs> Rutgers undergrad, CN Hall for law school. Were you in New Brunswick? No, I actually, there, there's the one, uh, the one limitation imposed by my dad, because um, I, I think he can only surmise from the movies what college life is like in America. <laughs> I was not allowed to uh, dorm, so I had to stay in the home um, and commute. So I went to the Newark campus and I worked at State Farm in Persephone about 20 hours a week on top of being a full-time student. Um, and, you know, my dad leased me the car and, and covered the insurance and the gas. And he said, you're going to commute. <laughs> As an undergrad. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That is an unusual college experience for, for most people. How did you feel about that? Did you feel like you were missing out on something? Uh, I mean, you know, whether he knew it or not, I still made it to the parties. Uh, I ended up going. Hopefully he's not watching. Yeah, I ended up going to uh, a lot of the uh, parties down at Rowan University, which uh, was one of the schools I was contemplating going to, but obviously that's not commutable. Um, and, you know, the, once once the party realized that my name was Rowan and we were at Rowan University, university they started chanting my name. So I, I still got the experience without having to live at the dorms. So I don't know, arguably maybe I had it better. I lived in a pretty nice home with my own room and, and didn't have to share anything with anyone, so. Were they a little easier with the other kids? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, it was, you know, um, I, I, I was the one that had to push the boundaries and I always tell my siblings, you guys had it easy, especially my youngest brother. I mean, he can literally do anything, it didn't matter. <laughs> Yeah, that that's always the joke, right? Is by the time they get to the younger kids, they've just sort of given up and gotten soft. So what was your major? Because at this point, you're still committed to going to law school. What was your major? I did political science. Um, and while I was at Rockers, I did an internship for the Office of Corporation Counsel down in uh, D.C. Um, through the Washington Center. Uh, some kind of, I think it was like women's leaders program. Um, and so I spent the summer down there for that. That was an exception to the dorming rule. Uh, and I got credit for the time I spent there. Um, I, while I was there, I worked on um, uh, protective, uh, civil protection orders for victims of domestic violence, helping them fill it out and, and all that stuff. Um, and that's where I realized that family law was what I was going to pursue in law school. Um, and I committed to that since then. So you already knew that you wanted to be a family lawyer. Yep. Before I even applied to law school. Yeah. It's always an interesting trajectory, how someone ended up in law school and then how they picked their practice area. We kind of joke, it picks you. You don't pick it. Right. I do want to back up a little bit though. It's interesting that you lived at home during your undergrad, but you also had, you worked a lot of hours. I mean, you worked 20 hours a week at State Farm. Was that a requirement imposed by your parents? No, I just um, wanted to lead a certain lifestyle on my own, <laughs> which my dad was not willing to fund. And so I wanted to make my own uh, money. And um, ended up getting some tuition reimbursement, too, through working at State Farm. So if you work 20 hours or more, you qualified for that. Well, that's good. So you, it sounds like you always had a little bit of a business acumen. Yeah, I've, had, um, I've been working in some capacity since I was probably 14 or 15, uh, mostly over my dad's objection. Uh, really? Honest working. Um, but I, I, I insisted. Um, so I, I did all types of jobs. I worked at McDonald's, Burger King, uh, Chuck E. Cheese, which I hear is now closing down forever. Uh, but yeah, so I, I've always had a job. So I knew I was going to be employed during uh, college and I would work um, full-time hours during school breaks in the summer and keep the 20 hour a week schedule during the semesters. And the, my, my supervisors and, and all the people there were really nice and, and stayed as flexible as possible with me to allow me to do split shifts and whatever I had to do to accommodate my school schedule. So McDonald's and Burger King, that is 
very different from what you do now. Although you were spending a lot of time dealing with the public, were you in the front or were you one one of the people in the back putting the French I mean, fries I was together? Not in the back to get the chicken nuggets fresh out of the thing, but I was on the front and on the drive through. The the drive through, from what I remember, in Wayne on twenty three for Burger King, the the cash register, the drive through. Does, did not compute for you the change that you had to give back. And so that left only, you know, one or two uh, people uh, working there that would be capable of <laughs> handling the drive-through and, and calculating the change fast enough to get the people moving through the drive-through. So I was one of those people. Um, and I think it, it really taught me a lot about the fact that a lot of people may sometimes project their personal problems on random strangers and it wouldn't make any sense if if you looked at it without knowing what what caused them to get to this point um it taught me a lot about customer service um about um uh, yeah, customer service was a big one. That was that was huge. Having to admit that to to say that you're sorry, even though you weren't wrong, uh, and is an extremely difficult thing for me. But I learned that early on doing these kind of smaller jobs. Yeah, I think what I've learned about customer service from early experience is working because I worked at a dry cleaners and. I do remember my boss always saying, you know, don't argue with them. You're not going to win the argument. And even if you win the argument, you don't really win because you lose the customer (laughs) or, you know, they leave mad. So you do have to have a certain amount of savvy to interact with with the public. And I always felt like that experience, it's, you know, some people might look at it like a menial job, but... I felt like I actually got a lot of life skills just from that first job. And it sounds like you feel the same way about working at McDonald's. Right. And, and, and even then, uh, when I looked back on it, I even got to see some family law related issues unfold right inside the store. Right. I, I watched parents exchange a child at the Burger King with you know for their parenting time i didn't realize what was going on at the time but you know once i started in law school i'm like oh that's what was ha- that's what was happening right yeah um, but it's it's crazy what you can learn in, in places like that and you see all different kinds of people come through there you know right. people from all different walks of life come mm-hmm. through there so it's actually a lot of really good exposure that was always something i was sorry that i never worked in food service or hospitality I think those are some of the most amazing experiences you can have just working with the public. Although a lot of people don't want to work with the public because, you know, it can be, it can be challenging, but I think you really learn a lot from that. So obviously it sounds like you're a people person. (laughs) As much as I can be, I guess. (laughs) I mean, do you ever, when you're maneuvering in the court system or working with a client, do you feel like those skills that you learned from your McDonald's days, do do you feel like those still come into play? They do um, in the sense that I'm able to step back and, and really try to not let my emotions get the best of me in responding to whatever is happening. Um, And to just, you know, try to employ as much empathy as possible to understand where someone's coming from and, and why they may be behaving the way that they are. Because I think once you start looking at people as multidimensional rather than what's just right in front of you, um, you can pretty much resolve whatever conflict exists. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's really insightful. So you went to law school. You already knew you were sort of on a family law track and you had this internship, what were you thinking was going to be your career path when you were in school? Did you do a clerkship? Did you skip that? What were you thinking you were going to do in terms of work after law school? So I did, I did the clinic at law school, the family law clinic. I'm represented underserved uh, litigants and family law issues. And I remember uh, my first court appearance at the clinic 
was in front of Judge Triano um, in Essex County. And for those who don't know who that is, he's been a family court judge for a long time. He was uh, on the uh, juvenile docket, but for some reason, this uncontested was before him. Um, and I, he was so aware of the fact that I was just an intern at this, at this clinic um, and, and made me feel so comfortable. And uh, I, it was such a pleasant experience of being in court. And I'm like, oh my God, I can do this every day. I want to be in court all the time. Um, so I applied for a clerkship in Essex County and uh, I ended up uh, clerking for Judge Comrie, uh, who was the lead dissolution judge um, in Essex County at that time. He handled divorces like Michael Strahan, Martin Bredour. He got all the tough ones and whatever ones Judge Zampino was conflicted at him. Um, and um, I, I really lucked out, honestly, because he was a, he's now retired, Judge Conroy, but he was a very hardworking judge who knew the rules inside and out and expected his law clerks to know them. Uh, so I gained a lot of experience while I was there. Um, and on top of it, the that was 2007, 2008. I graduated May 2007. So as we all know, the market crashed October 2008. And luckily for me, um, I had obtained already an offer during my clerkship in May of 2008 before all of that happened um, and went straight to a family law firm. And you were itching to get to court. During my interview, for the, my first position as uh, an associate, uh, the managing partner was, I still remember it like it happened yesterday, uh, right in front of me and the rest of the partners are around me. And at the end of it, uh, the managing partner, Jeff Weinstein, said to me, uh, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, I just have one. He said, okay. I said, how fast can I get into a courtroom? And his jaw dropped, frankly, and it got very quiet. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> did I just say the wrong thing? Uh, was that not the right uh, question? Um, and he, you know, uh, paused and then he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with that question. We just don't often get that kind of uh, uh, question and the desire to, to go into a courtroom so quickly from such a young associate. And ever since then, they knew that's that's where I wanted to be, and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, that is unusual. I know, I, and I'll speak from my own experience. I I wish I could say I was like you, dying to get into the courtroom, but I I had a lot of anxiety about that. I really wanted to do family law, so I knew that I would have to get over it. But it definitely made me nervous, and over time, I just grew out of that. But I remember in law school and you can tell me if you encountered people like this, they wanted to go into corporate for the very reason that they knew that they would never have to set foot in a courtroom. Right. And I just remember thinking that's so sad that you, that you would have to plan your career around these anxieties. So I think that's a great advantage for you. Right. So I, I think the clerkship helped me get, I mean, obviously everyone's a little nervous when they go to court, the outcome is undetermined. You, you know, you're, you're trusting, uh, the final decision-making in someone else's hands. So it, it's natural to have some anxiety about it. I think if you don't, then there's other bigger problems, but, um, what made me feel a lot more comfortable is my clerkship and seeing from the inside of the courthouse, how it runs that the judges and the, the staff are just humans. They're people like everyone else. And, um, you know, and, and that being respectful goes a really long way um, and being very prepared. So those things, I, I think the more I obsessed over preparation and anticipation of a court appearance, the, the more calm I felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that experience too. How do you feel about litigation in general, tw trial work? Have you had many opportunities to do that? Yeah, of course. Um, it's, uh, to me, litigation and family law um, is almost always avoidable if you have reasonable people on both sides. Uh, but uh, I am of the position that it's a necessary evil sometimes because 
it helps move past an impasse if, if you're not able to bridge the gap, or if you have uh, two litigants that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, there's, there's no way you're going to bridge that gap through settlement unless you conduct some some litigation. So I wouldn't say it's the go-to. Um, it's certainly uh, expensive and it requires a lot of time and effort, uh, time that I take away from my family and my personal life as well. You know, uh, as you know, preparing for a trial, it's, it's consuming your weekends or pulling all-nighters and um, it, it's not an easy thing. Uh, but unfortunately, it remains a necessary component of resolving a lot of cases. Well, some people are dying to get that trial experience and you don't really get that many opportunities. I think a family law to have a real divorce trial and that's okay. Cause that means that people are resolving things. So have you had experience doing domestic violence trials or plenary hearings? Yeah. So I've done both. And I also did five days of an arbitration for a full divorce trial with assets overseas and three or four expert witnesses. I think we have a total of seven witnesses uh, and a really awesome arbitrator. Um, At the seven day FRO trial, that was exhausting to say the least. You know, those are uh, the domestic violence trials are much more difficult because of the lack of discovery. Um, so it, it's hard to kind of anticipate what's going to happen. Um, so I think they require more work actually in that sense. Um, but yeah, there's that, always a surprise at a DV trial. <laughs> right. And, and look, and, and, and it, to me, I, I, every, for every, uh, uh, potential trial or case or even plenary hearing, um, I've always advised clients that it's, always risky and you don't know what the outcome will be. And even if we are 100% correct on everything does not mean that it will translate in whatever the final order is. And then you've got, you know, the appellate division and the costs related to that um, to, to try to, to fix whatever. Um, so it's, it's not, it's certainly not a go-to. I know that it's, uh, it's, it's great for us kind of from a, um, nerdy lawyer perspective of, you know, this is so interesting. Let's, let's, let's really delve into these issues. I want to see how the judge rules on, on these particular aspects and, and to really map out an entire trial and strategy. Um, but like you said, uh, I think, um, something that is happening now with virtual court appearances that may have an unintended, uh, effect is that, and the day of trial, which is the time that most cases will really settle, um, there's this feeling where you're in the hallway of the courthouse, it's real. You're going to have to sit on the stand. There's other strangers in the courtroom. They're going to hear about your life. Um, you have to remember everything you said and everything you wrote and all of that. Um, and in that moment, those people would were, were more likely settle their case um, especially when there's other cases that are scheduled at the same time and, and you're obviously sitting around the courthouse waiting. Now, I think with these virtual appearances, that's, that's kind of been uh, pulled back a bit. It, it's a little almost too convenient to have these trials and hearings uh, when you don't have to leave your house. Yeah, that's true. But I think for, I think clients experience it so differently than we do. We're used to going to court and speaking to the judge. And oftentimes if they do go to court, they don't have to say anything. They're just sitting next to you. So that spotlight isn't on them. So I think a lot of times they kind of have this moment where they think, oh God, if I go to trial, that's it. I'm going to have to talk this time. The spotlight's going to be on me. I actually have to participate more in this. And I think that sometimes that is sort of their come to Jesus moment. (laughs) You know, we're either doing this or we're going to settle. And another thing I think people realize once they get to the courthouse and they, they actually see how this all works. It's not like television. It's not nearly as exciting as law and order or the good wife or whatever they're watching. You know, you don't have that moment where, your private detective comes in the room, whispers in your ear about this amazing evidence they just found, and it saves the day. No, it doesn't happen like that. It's actually quite boring. Right. 
Right. Especially when you're going through account statements. <laughs> yeah. The most boring in a, in, a, in a case information statement. I was actually watching uh, probably for the fifth time now, Intolerable Cruelty. I don't know if you've seen that movie uh, with George Clooney. Uh, he had the, the Massey preed up and just the, the trial that happened, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my God, now that I'm, you know, I'm watching it at this age, I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm like, people really think it's this dramatic and it, it rarely ever is. I haven't, yeah. I've only had that smoking gun aha moment on the stand through a slip up through cross-examination, I think once in the last I don't know how long I've been, 13 years of practicing. It yeah. It doesn't happen often. It's great when it happens. Right. So do you think you're a lifer in family law? Yeah. Well, this is what I set out to do. I can't imagine doing anything else. I can't. I, I agree with you. I had a whole bunch of friends um, in law school who purposely went into uh, transactional work, whether it was corporate or estates and, and trusts, uh, because they could not imagine going to court ever, ever. Um, but I can't imagine myself behind the desk every day. I just can't. Well, how much of your time though are you spending behind a desk versus in court? Because someone like you, I'm actually surprised that you didn't go into maybe into the prosecutor's office because they really hit the ground running. They're, they get to go to court all the time. They're probably in court more than they're at their desk. Right. Did you ever think about doing that? Not um, now, but when you were in school? I did think about uh, the prosecutor route. Um, and I remember I really liked the criminal law classes. And I think the professor at the time really did an excellent job. But uh, I thought about it. And I, and I, and I thought to myself, um, you may not want to be the last face that a criminal defendant sees as the reason for them going to prison for life. Uh, <laughs> so maybe this isn't uh, really what I want from a lifestyle perspective. And, and I kind of abandoned that. I also got interested in, in corporate finance and I thought I would get involved in some kind of SEC things. Um, but ultimately went right back to family because we get to see, we get to deal with almost every other area, right? We've got real estate. We have to know about investments and brokerage accounts and trusts and estates and literally every facet of, of someone's life. Um, and I and I really do cross apply principles from other areas of, of law to family law um, if there isn't precedent to back up what I'm trying to say. Uh, so I think it gives me the ability to. Um, to really touch on all these other areas uh, while still pursuing something I'm more passionate about. Do you have, um, do you attract Arabic speaking clients? Because I can't think of too many attorneys right now that speak Arabic. Right. So there's, uh, I, I will admittedly say that my Arabic is not as strong. I can understand it. I can probably read and write at an elementary level. Uh, but, you know, my last name does seem to attract a lot of Arabic uh, clients and a lot of Indian clients. Um, so I have a decent amount of them, uh, but um, I'm certainly not, um, they're, they're a smaller fraction of my practice, I'll say that much. I think it's just because of the numbers in general. Would you say that you have any kind of niche? You know, there are certain cases you really love working on. I love interstate anything. anything really? That, that's why I practice simultaneously in New York and New Jersey. Um, and especially now and in today's world uh, with people and families making the decision to leave uh, New York City, let's say, uh, and move over right across the Hudson to, to the suburbs of New Jersey. Um, I've had some people contacting me that after living in New Jersey for four months, they're ready to get divorced. And now they're in the you know, divorce black hole, uh, where there's no jurisdiction to, to deal with them. Um, yeah. so I, I love those issues. Um, and, and having this simultaneous practice in both states allows me to, to kind of attract that kind of clientele. Um, and then having so many family law attorneys at my firm in other states, since we span from New York to North Carolina off at Kerman, um, 
if there are issues of kidnapping or relocating out of this state into a state that I'm not licensed into, at least on the Eastern Seaboard, um, I would have somebody in house that can that can deal with that, help protect the client. What about international custody cases? Have you worked on any of those? So so far, I had one really uh, good one that went pretty far. Um, and that was uh, a really sad one. Uh, unfortunately, they were not able to locate the child within the first year of the wrongful removal. And so um, after the first year, it becomes a little more difficult to, uh, it's not an automatic return of the child. Um, and I, that was with Judge Melchion in Bergen County, and he did an excellent job um, handling the, the issues. Uh, but it was pretty complicated because the maternal, the, the, the mother had passed away and it was a fight between the maternal family and the biological father. Okay. That's interesting. We said that brings up grandparent rights too. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, the, the child was being taken care of by, uh, the aunt, the grandparents and had a, a stepsister, uh, in Ecuador and that was wrongfully removed to the U S uh, by the biological father. Um, so it was interesting. Are you practicing regularly in New York? I'm doing both. Yeah. Full time. Uh, my, my office is in Midtown, uh, primarily, but then I have the office in uh, Metro Park, uh, in the Woodbridge area. Um, so I really have the flexibility to be in both places. That's really good information to know because I know people that are technically barred in New York, but they don't really practice. So it's kind of like they don't, they can't really advise you very quickly because they're not doing it all the time. But it sounds like you're doing it all the time. Yeah, I just had a, an actual jurisdictional battle uh, between New York County, Manhattan, um, and New Jersey. Uh, my client filed first in Hudson County. Um, and then wife evaded process and filed in, in New York. And I was able to get the New York matter dismissed and have the New Jersey matter proceed, which was the better outcome, um, for my client. That's good work. I'll have to keep you in mind for my New York people because a lot of times I don't know where to send them. So we're, we've been talking a lot about your work, but what, what, what nuggets can you give us about your personal life? What, what are your passions? Um, so right now my passions are spending a lot of time with my puppy, <laughs> Milo, uh, who's super adorable and he's not even five months old. Um, and a COVID puppy or I guess that's like you had him right before. Kind of. I, I, um, I, one of my friends, uh, was getting his brother and that's how I learned about him. Uh, but he was located in Arizona. Um, and then COVID actually was complicating the situation, uh, because by the time he was going to hit 10 weeks, uh, was going to be in early May. Um, and we didn't know what was going to happen because it was, you know, we, nobody wanted to fly, frankly. Uh, but I was able to secure a service that flew Milo for me on board, not in, uh, the storage area. Um, and I picked him up from Newark airport on mother's day. <laughs> wow, you, oh, that's so appropriate. You must've really wanted this puppy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's super cute. I, my last dog I had for 12 years. And they're a similar breed, not exact, uh, but it took me about two and a half years to be ready again to love on that level. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Uh, but yeah, you know, with our, with our schedules, it's, it's hard. So you have to, it, it's, it has to be a very conscious decision to have a pet. <laughs> yeah. So have you gone back to the Middle East since you left when you were 11? I went back once in 2017. Most of my family lives in Canada, believe it or not. Um, and so really the only people that are left in Jordan right now are my grandma, who's uh, uh, just turning 90, and my uncle, who's uh, the head of one of the departments at the University of Jordan. Um, and my grandma would spend half her time in Canada because she was dual citizen. And yeah. I asked for a little bit. So for a long time, we didn't have to go 
back because uh, we got to see her before she went to see my aunts in Canada. Uh, but now that she's older, that, that flight is, is a bit much for her. So in 2017, we went um, to Jordan and it was very different from what I remember it. Uh, but then again, my memories were, you know, from the perspective of a child. So even looking at the building where my grandma used to live and where I used to play outside in the summers, I'm like, wow, I thought this was a high rise and it's really only like five floors. <laughs> that was my memory of it. it was so skewed for my size. Yeah, you're taller now. <laughs> yeah, I'm taller. I also found uh, uh, that they have a, a pastry chain uh, in, in the capital by the name of Rowan Cakes. So of course I had to go in there. I took a picture under the sign and ate some Rowan cake. It was delicious. Um, and you know, Starbucks is huge there. We went to- the, Really? Yeah, there's Ubers. It, it's a whole different world uh, than what I uh, remembered. Um, and we, we took a trip to Dead Sea. We went to Marriott Resort and did a whole spa day. And That's so cool. It was really good. It was really good. That's Very on my hot. bucket list, the Dead Sea. Did yeah. you float? Uh, yeah, you, it's, it happens automatically. I mean, it's crazy. They even had some of the, the water from the Dead Sea in the pools at the, at the resort. So you didn't even have to go over there. <laughs> and, and I've heard that the, some people believe that the Dead Sea has healing properties. Supposedly the mud, uh, I think, is the thing that's supposed to be healing and really good for your skin from an anti-aging perspective. So it was part of the, you know, the mud bath thing at the spa. Uh, I don't know if it really helped. I want to Well, you're really 65, that. right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I was, uh, well, have you ever gone to a float spa or a floating tank? So oh, that that's like the deprivation ones. Yeah, basically. But you're floating in salt water. They, there's so much salt in it that you get in and you just float. Oh wow! And you know it's dark, and it's you're right. It's it's the the theory behind it is the sensory deprivation. So you're floating you're in the dark, there's really no sensation. You, 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 you do feel like you're kind of floating in space and they adjust the temperature of the water. So you don't feel, it doesn't feel hot or cold. So you, once you get in there and you get relaxed, you kind of forget that you're floating in water. So I'd kind of want to like to go to the, the, the Dead Sea and compare the, the two All right. and um, see what that experience is like. Well, I think that that spa you're talking about definitely has that added layer of the sensory deprivation because I think that's that's supposed to be right. The, the main part of it is that you're able to kind of do this mind expansion and, and focus on your on your thoughts or whatever it is that you want to do while you're in there. Um, you're certainly not going to get that at the Dead Sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very meditative. So, what's on your bucket list? Um, I need to. Um, travel way more, way more than I have. Um, I need to get to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I need to get to uh, Bora Bora. I want to get to the ones that most people think are cliche spots. I want to go and see it in person. Like what? Uh, you know, they're just the, your basic, uh, you know, Bora Bora. I mean, I, everybody's got something on their social media about, you know, being there or going there or wanting to be there. But it, it seems boring in a sense, but I, I, I want to see it for, for myself. Um, another thing that's on my bucket list is to um, race cars. I know. Ooh. Yeah, I'm I'm a diehard car person. I I drive stick uh, on purpose. I have to special order my cars to get them in stick because they don't really manufacture them uh, in stick anymore. Um, and everyone can't understand why I continue to torture myself in that way. Uh, but I love the drive and the control of it. Um, I did uh, through BMW went to Monticello uh, Motor Club or something up in New York. Uh, state and got the opportunity to test drive all the M lines through an obstacle course and then take the six series around the rink. Um, and it was, I mean, I, I think my cheeks were numb from how much I was smiling the whole time. Like That's was- awesome. I love that. What, so how do you get into that? 
You should totally do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm planning that out. It's, it's on the bucket list. <laughs> um, but, you know, getting something like uh, some time on a racetrack, um, I guess I could probably just go to English Town or something uh, and, and do it there um, or really take it all the way and instead of a country club membership, do a motorsport uh, membership of some sort. But, well, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I just started paying a little more attention to that sort of thing recently because of some podcasts that I've been listening to and was learning the difference between NASCAR and Formula One. I mean, do you watch that stuff? I do not like to watch other people race. Okay. Like other people driving me anywhere. So (laughs) You're into the driving experience yourself. Yeah. But what, what do you like about the race car? Is it the speed? Um, it's the, the memorization and strategy of the track and knowing when to accelerate, when to decelerate, when to downshift, um, and just all around. I mean, I wish someone could teach me how to do more tricks with the car, like, uh, um, you know, burning out the tires and all that good stuff, you know? Uh, but I, I would want to obviously do it with a, with an experienced instructor because I don't want to end up like Talladega Nights. (laughs) Yeah. Like those little disclaimers, don't try this at home. Oh, that's awesome. I feel like I want to help you now find someone who's going to teach you how to do that. But I don't know how to drive a stick. And I actually keep saying that I want to learn how to drive a stick because I feel like that's a good skill to have. And I would love to drive a race car. And they're all sticks, aren't they? Aren't they all sticks? I guess most of them I have to assume that they are. And you know what? Actually, my skills came uh, handy uh, when, uh, I, and, and uh, when I went to Portugal with a few of my friends and none of them knew how to drive stick and all the rentals that they had available were stick. Um, so I was the de facto driver and got to drive all around Portugal. It was really an experience. I've always heard people say though, that it's not convenient to have a stick when you're driving in traffic all the time. I mean, it's true that it's a little more difficult. I have to, for instance, have driving shoes in my car all the time so that I'm not wearing my heels because I don't want to ruin the back of my shoes or the floor mat. <laughs> uh, but it becomes so second nature because I've been driving six since I was in college, right? I can do it in my sleep. I don't even think about it, really. So it's not that inconvenient for me as long as I am, um, you know, um, timing it out correctly. But what I think it really does, uh, and especially in today's world, it keeps me focused on the road, on the driving. I, the driving is something I'm actively doing by having to think about what gear I need to be in and what speed I should be in coming to a rolling stop before a red light instead of using the brakes too much. Um, so I like it from that perspective too. And I wish that more people drove stick, but it, it's a dying breed and it's not coming back anytime soon. Especially maybe maybe you could teach me. Maybe you're the one. I am the one. I will teach you. <laughs> this is why we came together in the universe. So you could teach me how to drive a stick. <laughs> I will. You may not want to do it ever again, but I will definitely teach. No, you may never want to do it again. You'd be like, Christina, maybe this isn't your thing. (laughs) I'll tell you this. I insisted on having a stick car uh, when I was younger. And, you know, the deal with my dad with the whole commuting is that he would lease me a car. And so my first car was the RSX, Acura RSX Type S. Um, in, in high school, I had a, a Honda Civic. I was not allowed to have stick then. So I insisted this car. Now I'm over 18. Dad, it needs to be stick. Um, so I was like, yeah, really? Why? You're going to end up crashing. And he, him and my mom drove stick uh, through my whole life growing up when we were overseas because that, that was the standard there. Um, and he's like, no, 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 no. I don't think it's a good idea for you. So I insisted. We go to the dealership to, to pick up the car. And he's like, all right, you're going to drive it home. And in that moment, I felt more nervous 
than I had ever felt about any core appearance <laughs> since then. I can, I can literally compare it. I felt so nervous that now that the spotlight and pressure was on me to prove to my dad that he did not make the wrong decision by signing with me. And I remember driving from the dealership and my leg was, my left leg that usually goes on the, on the clutch was shaking from the nervousness so bad that I ended up stalling out. And my dad's behind me in his car and, and my brother's in the car. And I'm like, oh God, oh God, I just stalled. He's going to know I have to turn the car back on and he's going to say, I told you so. But he did it. He was really good about it. He pulled, he, he pulled over and we switched spots. I took his truck back home and he drove it home. And that day he again uh, taught me how to maneuver up a very steep hill, which is a very important skill to learn if you're gonna be driving um, stick. Um, and, and then I felt at ease. I didn't have that nervousness anymore. So, but who taught you how to drive a stick? Cause it sounds like you learned on a, a standard first. Yeah, so I watched my parents uh, drive growing up stick. So I, I knew it conceptually uh, from, from watching them. And then um, I, I spent a lot of time at, at an arcade uh, where they had this very realistic stick game, uh, racing game. Um, so I did a lot of that. Um, and then that's it pretty much. And then that lesson with my dad on the day that we picked up the car. Uh, after that, you really just got to get the feel for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the few times this was so long ago, someone tried to teach me how to drive a stick and, and I get it conceptually what you're doing, but there was always like this magical spot where the, where the clutch would be and, and you would feel it and, and every car is different. Right. But so I guess if you have enough experience driving a stick, it's, you can get into any car and you know, you, you kind of feel it out and you know right away how to drive it. But I didn't get enough experience to really have it in my muscle memory. Right. And, it, and it's so different from the type of clutch, right? There's, there's the performance clutch that's going to be a little stiffer for the race type cars. And there's more luxury type cars. And yeah. now they've advanced so much that it's so easy and seamless. But you're right. You do have to get the feel for that particular car. Um, and, and if you just don't, if you don't have it, it's, it's not going to work. I, I can't even get into, um, an automatic car without my foot looking automatically for a clutch. It's like weird. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Right yeah. Now. My left foot right now. I'm still holding the, the little center console as if there's a gear shift there. It's, it's, it's really weird to me. What about those cars that have the paddle shifters? That's, that's cheating. Uh, yeah, it's not. It doesn't have that same feel. It's yeah. It's it's electronic. It feels more like a video game uh, than than the feel of slowly letting off a clutch. You know, if 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 I was in some kind of dangerous situation on on a highway and I actually needed to speed up um, in an exponentially quick way, um, a stick car is is my friend because I can really drop it into a much lower gear. And now these cars. It's, it's really amazing. I mean, the, the car that I have now, I, I, I ordered it in March and it just got here two weeks ago because of COVID. It was being manufactured in, in California. Um, it, it's, you're at like 70 miles an hour in second gear. It's insane. Uh, it's, it's insane. So where do you go to, you know, test these out? Um, so there's a lot of highways since I commuted um, to Newark pretty much, uh, you know, through college and law school and then my clerkship. So that's like eight years or something of driving around Essex County and Passaic County. I, I know a lot of the roads and I know uh, some of the roads that I can push it a little bit. I wouldn't really push it um, on public roads, but... Of course uh, not. Yeah. I mean, look, when I'm trying to get to court, <laughs> you know, Sometimes yeah. I have to push it a bit, but I never, um, I never drive uh, that way when I have someone in the car with me. It doesn't matter who it is. You could do it if I'm in the car. I won't object. <laughs> and actually, you know what? I think it's there's starting to be more traffic now because people are coming out of their homes. But when we were in the middle of COVID and stay at home, 
there you could go out and you really could have, you know, put what is it? Put pedal to the metal. Is that the expression? Right. Um, you could have done that because there was nobody on the road. There weren't really even any police officers pulling anyone over. Yeah, um, that's what I had heard too. Frankly, I don't you, blame that. You could drive <laughs> by and wave. <laughs> yeah, like that, I'm just only going 10 miles over the speed limit. Not worth, not worth getting COVID over. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I did um, drive a lot uh, at, the, at those beginning stages. Just like Saturday was my thing where I was change of pace, get out. But one of my favorite drives uh, to do, well, actually two, two favorite drives. Uh, one was to go to Atlantic city, um, from up here. Um, it's New Jersey's just gorgeous, right? You don't really get that in New York city and in Jersey city, you don't, you don't get to see all the green. Um, and, uh, I usually ended up with, you know, um, a bar association event of some sort, or it was a lot of fun and, uh, educational. Um, that was a fun ride and I had it all mapped out. I knew exactly where I would stop for my break and refueling. Um, and then my other favorite drive was to North Arlington, Virginia. That, that, that's where I lived when I did the internship in DC and it's, it's just so scenic the whole route. Uh, I, I really loved it. So what's the fastest you've ever gone? Um, probably over 125 miles an hour. Not on a track though. That was on that was on the track at BMW. Um, so I'll incriminate myself, I guess. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about when I was in in college doing my split shifts between uh, Rockers in Newark and um, State Farm in the regional Persephone office. So I uh, I was driving. Uh, now keep in mind that my car is under my father's name, and so is my insurance. Um, so <laughs> under his policy, I should say. Um, I was driving from Newark late already to get to work, and I get on 280 uh, from 21 to 280, and I have to get to 287. Um, and this guy in a, a BMW with tinted windows—I couldn't even see what he looked like got behind me, was kind of very close to my car. And I, you know, I was not doing the speed limit. So it was kind of an unreasonable uh, situation. And then he got next to me. He's going back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, I don't know what got over me. I was already in a hurry. And so I just kind of started zooming through. Uh, And he's following me and he's unable to catch up. And I look down and I'm like, oh, my God, I just hit 101. And I just let go of the gas. I look in my rearview mirror. It was an undercover cop. Uh, yeah, I had a feeling that that's where this was going. And he pulled you over? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he pulled me over. Right where that's 287 cool. and 280 meet. And um, I probably am uh, by far the luckiest human being on earth, maybe, because he, as an undercover cop, I don't know if he suspected that entrapment would get rid of this anyway, because uh, what I told him uh, when he came up to my car, he's like, oh, my God, shocked that I was a woman and or, or a girl at the time and that I was driving stick. Um, <laughs> and that's it, they were driving like a madman. And my car shut off four times before I reached you. And through the, the heavens, somehow he got an emergency call on his thing and said, take this as your lucky day, got his car and drove off very quickly. I was like, oh, dear wow. God. Uh, it took me an entire day to get over that because I, I was more thinking about how am I going to explain this to my dad <laughs> than That's, anything else. Uh, that but, is so funny. When I was in law school, I lived in central Jersey and I went to Rutgers and Camden and my grandparents gave me their crown Victoria. So, you know, I think they're still around, but they're enormous cars and at that time, it wasn't that long ago, um, maybe like 15 years ago, there were cop cars, you know, like they were the undercover cop cars. So when I would drive to Camden at night, because I was a night student, it's dark, you know, have my headlights on and I would be on 287. And every time I would drive behind somebody, and I didn't do this intentionally, I started noticing it. I would drive <laughs> behind someone and they would just get out of the way. 
And I, after a while, I'm like, wow, this is so, so strange, you know? Like, why are these people doing this? And then I realized it was because they think it's a cop behind them. Yeah. So I was like, yes, this is awesome. Because really, who has Crown Victorias? There's two people, old people and cops, and that's it. So, you know, that was the blessing that I had of having a Crown Victoria at 27 or whatever it was. And, the, and, and there's another substitute to the Crown Vic uh, that will get people out of the way, driving out of the state of New Jersey with New Jersey plates. That may not apply in, in New York City. Really? Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland, all the places I've driven, uh, people see, they look in the rear view mirror, they see Jersey plates and they just get out of the way. They're like crazy driver. <laughs> we better well <laughs> stay away they, from them. Yeah, or they realize <laughs> that, you know, we have this unspoken rule of the left lane is uh, for speeding and not going below the speed limit and they get out of the way. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I, I drive, I drive too fast. I do. I love the speed. I do because I actually have a secret desire to drive a race car too. So I think we're kindred spirits. But it's so annoying to me when someone's going really slow in the left lane, especially if there's room in the right lane. And right. it's like, why are you in the left lane? Move over. So I call, I always, I'll take a picture sometimes and say, well, you know, I think the left lane is the new right lane. <laughs> right. The right lane's the new left lane. So, but I feel like we have to put this out. We have to put these vibes out into the universe for you. You need to realize this dream. So if anybody's listening to this on my podcast or watching it and you can help Rowan out, please do. Cause I want to see you in a race car, you know, with, with, with the big onesie on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that BMW event I went to, they make you put um the 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 uh fireproof covering like mask over your face first and then the helmet on. Um so it was a little it was a little over the top, hard to take a selfie in those yeah. circumstances. <laughs> so if you weren't practicing law, what do you think you would be doing? Would that be let, let's I sometimes I ask this question. If you won a hundred million dollars in the lottery and you know, money's just not an issue anymore. What are you doing with your life? What are you gonna do? I would still volunteer uh pro bono work in family uh cases, only domestic violence matters. Um for uh, based on my own pace, obviously. Um and I think you know, I always thought I, I would run a company of some sort um, and having this connection to cars that there would be something in there, you know, with car design or, or something. Um, although admittedly, I am no artist and certainly no one wants to see any drawing made by me. But in today's world of technology, I could maybe tell the computer what I'm thinking <laughs> and have them create it. So you've thought that you would like to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you think that will happen? Maybe one day we'll see. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I'd like to think I've got uh, many more decades under my belt to pursue whatever I need to pursue. Um, and if I think it's the right move at the right time. Yeah. Good. I'll be watching you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a guest on Wake Up Call and sharing your story. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. I had such an awesome time during this uh, interview, and uh, I'm really excited to to now learn how much more in common we have than I thought I knew. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll have to do a version two. I I really do want to. I want to keep my eyes and ears peeled for some opportunities for the race car because. You know, you just really lit up when you talked about that. So, <laughs> so thank you. And please let us know and my viewers know how we can reach out to you if we're interested in learning more about you and your services. So they can find me definitely through Google, LinkedIn, and our firm website on offitcarmen.com. Um, or they can uh, email me directly at rhmoud at offitcarmen.com. 
Awesome. And I'll have all your information in the show notes. So Rwan's pretty easy to find. And if there's any NASCAR or Formula One drivers out there just happen to be listening, you know, reach out and we'll, we'll hook you up with Rwan and, you know, maybe a second career for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for watching or listening, whatever you're doing. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.